0: Chili Bible. It is another great day to worship the Lord Jesus together and to be with his people. Amen. This is a good day. Um, I I trust the weather forecaster is uh, not lying to us and it's not going to rain when we are out there. Uh, We have a few people, uh, I think about six, who are going to uh, get baptized today and that's going to be exciting as they make public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to praise God for that this morning, uh, for His work uh, in their life that has brought about a response in them of faith and of uh, conversion and regeneration. And we need to praise God with, the, uh, with them for that, uh, that God has granted new life to these people. Uh, before that happens, though, we want to open God's Word together and we're going to be uh, listening to his voice here this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1. So if you'd find your way there. And, and as you make your way there, just try to formulate, if you can, an answer to this question. What is the church? What is it? How do you know if a particular gathering of people or a gathering of Christians that you have is, in fact, a church? Uh, This is a bigger issue than you might think. In fact, uh, coming up uh, two years from now, October 31st, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther... Walking to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailing his 95 Theses to the church door and touching off the Protestant Reformation. And one of the big issues that came up is what is a church? One of the things that Martin Luther was protesting against was the idea formulated by the Roman Catholic Church that a church is the institution composed of all the Christians that are there in Europe and is led by the Pope in Rome and the bishops and cardinals and priests and so forth and possessing these cathedrals and whatnot across the continent. They said, the church is us. And if you're outside of this institution led by the Pope, then you are not a church. Is that true? I hope you say no. (laughs) Okay. Because you're right. Okay. How about the modern evangelical response? A lot of modern evangelicals will take a verse out of Matthew chapter 18, I believe it's verse 20, and they will misapply it. And they will say, wherever you've got two or three Christians, well, that's a church. Because wherever two or three gather in my name, Jesus said, there I am with them, right? Notice he did not say, there is the church. He said, I'm there with them. By the way, that's in the context of church discipline. So if you want to cite of verse that's probably not the one you want to go with <laughs> for what the church is supposed to look like although church discipline is an aspect of the church's ministry is that a church Are ecclesiastical offices and officers and buildings and history what define a church is any gathering of, of uh, a few random christians is that a church how do you know what a church is? Well, the reformers came up with a good answer, and one of the answers that they came up with is: it is not the people who can claim some line of descent of offices handed down from the apostles. It's the it is an institution, certainly, and an organization, certainly, but it is primarily. And first of all, identified with those who carry on not the office of apostle, as the Pope claims to be, a living apostle, but those who carry on the apostles' teaching as it was originally given by Jesus to the apostles, encoded in the book, written down for our instruction. And those who hold to the apostles' teaching then create an organization which has not just orthodoxy, but also order, it has officers. Here, there's a, there's a diagram for you. Okay. It has three marks. It has orthodoxy, order, ordinances on one side, supporting the, the church, And then also certain necessary essential works, things that the church has to do in order to be a church. And those things are evangelism, edification, and exaltation. So in other words, we've got to reach people with the gospel, we've got to help them grow up into maturity in Christ, and we've got to worship Christ together, right? And so any gathering of Christians, which is characterized by orthodoxy, by order, by ordinances, baptism and communion, uh, by the necessary works of evangelism, edification, exaltation. That is a church. Okay, And we're going to see that uh, the reformers did not just make this stuff up. In fact, they got that out of their Bible. Good idea, by the way. Uh, if, you want to, uh, if you want to understand what God has to say about something, it's a good idea to look at what God actually said. Amen? That seems obvious, but it in fact was not obvious, and still not obvious today to a lot of people. But that is what a church is. And we want to look at the first component of that, the first mark, if you will, of the church, which is orthodoxy. So if you got your Bible, open it up to... Second Timothy chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 8 to 14 here today. Paul says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us into your word, that the words that I speak would not be my words, but would be your words clearly explained so that we could say with one another, thus says the Lord, and bring our lives into conformity with it. And Father, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes and open our hearts to receive the truth of your word and to obey it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 2 Timothy is the last inspired book written by the Apostle Paul. It's written when he is in a Roman prison awaiting execution. He has been preaching the gospel all over the Roman Empire. He has run afoul of uh, certain elements of the Jewish community in Israel who have had him arrested. They want to have him shipped off to prison and put to death there because he is proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Supreme Lord over Nero, the emperor. And in fact, that is, that is true. That's an absolute Reality that Paul proclaims that there is one Lord, and there is one ruler, and it is Jesus Christ, not whoever sits on that throne in Rome. And Nero is about to take his head off for that. And so Paul is writing this letter to his his disciple and his son in the faith Timothy, who's a pastor of the local church uh, in Ephesus, I believe, at this time. And he's telling him some things that he needs to know. This is like if you are a father and you are about to die. And you know you're going to die. And you gather your son near to your hospital bed. And you say, now son, remember. Here's some things that I'm going to tell you that are the last truth that's ever going to come out of my lips. And you need to hold to these things. You need to hold on to these things because this is what is really important. As you're facing death, you're able to winnow down what it is that really matters. And and that's what Paul is doing in the whole letter of 2 Timothy. And as you look at the text together, what you can see is that there are three central ideas that uh, uh, that Paul wants Timothy to hang on to as kind of Paul's definition of orthodoxy. What it means to hold on to the faith that was transmitted to you, Timothy. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you need to possess shameless faith. Whenever the pressure gets dialed up in your life for being a Christian, and whenever there becomes a cost to following Jesus, there is going to be the temptation to blunt the edges a little bit. To round off some of the sharper corners of the Christian faith. In fact, that might happen today. Can't think of any examples right this minute, right? Uh, But there is a lot of pressure that's being brought on Timothy. And this is coming about right as Paul is writing. Paul is in prison already for preaching the gospel. And the temptation, if you were Timothy, would be to go, you know, Paul, he was a good guy, and he held to some deep truth, and I agree with him. However, I'd like to not be quite so obvious with it. Because I watched how that story unfolded, and I didn't, it liked it all the way to the end. And that wasn't so comfortable. So maybe what we just need to do is maybe we just need to go quiet. Maybe we need to, you know, kind of just keep. You know, just keep it down a little. Not draw so much attention to what we believe and to whom we believe. And Paul says this. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. What's the testimony about our Lord? It's the gospel message. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins in our place and was raised from the dead, the victor over death, who ascended into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God because His work of atonement on our behalf is done. That is the good news. about. That is the testimony about our Lord. He says, Timothy, don't you be ashamed of that. And don't you be ashamed of me who went to jail for that and who is going to death for that. Paul is in prison precisely because he was not ashamed to preach the gospel and he wants Timothy to possess the same shameless faith. And he says, look, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Because, and why does he tell him that? Because if you are totally shameless in your proclamation of the gospel, it's going to have a cost. It's going to have a cost. You may lose some Facebook friends. Okay? You may lose some other things. You may lose, some, you may lose your job. You may lose some of the money in your bank account. You may lose some things. But, it's worth it. And on top of that, God, Paul says, will provide the power to endure. In other words, Timothy, I'm not just asking you to do this simply by your own effort. Just kind of grit your teeth, grin and bear it kind of stuff. He says, endure by the power of God. In other words, Timothy, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're going to have to rely on Jesus to make it through some very tough times that are coming your way. And on top of that, he says, verse 9, whatever suffering we endure for the sake of Jesus and the gospel is worth it because not only will God provide the power to endure it, but he is the same God who saved us according to his purpose and grace before the world was made. In other words, he is reminding Timothy, look, Timothy, God, before the creation, planned to send Jesus Christ to suffer and save you. Before there were stars and planets, God saved you. Is that a little Calvinistic? It might be, but it's okay, because we serve a Calvinistic God. Amen? Okay. The Scripture says that before the world was made, the Lamb was slain. Before God created anything else, He had a plan and a purpose looking down through history, and He had your name written on the cross. And He said to the Son, When you go to the cross, it will be that person and that person and that person and that person that you will save by your death and resurrection. In other words, Timothy, do you think you can endure suffering? Yes. Why? Because Christ planned to suffer for you before the creation even happened. Your salvation was written in the book of life before there was a world. And mine was too. Isn't that good? Isn't that a reason to praise God? I mean, amen. Is that a reason to praise God? That God saw you and me before he saw anything else, he saw us and made a plan. Knowing that we would fall into sin, he made a plan to save you and me and sent Jesus to accomplish it. That's an amazing thing. And he says on top of that, that it's not because we were so wonderfully special. Okay? Look at your text there. It says, verse 9, "...not because of our works." but according to His purpose and what? Grace. Grace. In other words, so that no one can ever stand before God and say, You're welcome. Okay? But only because of God's grace. He did not owe us anything. In fact, if we got what we deserved, we would all die and go to hell this instant. If God, if God decides at some point to eliminate all evil from the world, it would be very easy to do. He just has to kill everybody. Right? But God did not do that. According to his purpose and grace, he sent Jesus Christ to save sinners of whom I am chief. Amen? And He redeemed us, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and plan and grace. And therefore, that ought to do two things for us. Number one, it should cause us to fall face down before God in wonder and praise and worship that God would plan before the foundation of the world to save me is a very big thought. And that He sent His Son to die to accomplish my redemption. If God did nothing else for me in the rest of creation, in the rest of my existence, I would have reason to praise Him for all eternity. But, of course, that's not all he does. That's just the beginning. But it ought to drive me to my knees, and it ought to also, secondly, encourage me to display the kind of shameless faith that Paul exhorts Timothy to exhibit. He says, I am not ashamed. Why? Because God gives me the power not to be and because God saved me before the foundation of the world according to his purpose and grace. Therefore, I am not ashamed. And if I go to jail, I go to jail. I lose my job, I lose my job. If I lose my bank account, I lose my bank account. If I lose my life, I lose my life. But I will go down proclaiming Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen? And that kind of shameless faith is not abstract and esoteric. It is a faith with content. It's a faith in the central truths of the gospel. And if you look at verses 10 through 12, what you see... Uh, are some of these central truths. In fact, there are seven central truths of the gospel that a person needs to hold to if they're going to be an orthodox Christian. And conveniently enough for us, almost all of them are described or alluded to in verses 10 through 12, and the ones that are not are described or alluded to in the remainder of the passage. So I want to highlight for you these seven truths, okay? The first one is God is triune, and He is the Creator and the Redeemer. Uh, God as Creator and Redeemer is all of verse 9. And we get the fact that God is a trinity, that He is not simply a unitary God, but He exists in three persons uh, in... The references to the Lord, verse 8, Christ Jesus, verse 9, 10, and 13. And the reference to the Holy Spirit, verse 14. So you've got God, you've you've got the Son, and you've got the Holy Spirit. Hence we baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? That God exists eternally as a triune being who planned and purposed before he created to bring creation into existence and then to save out of that creation people for his own glory. Second thing is the fall and depravity. Orthodoxy includes knowing that we are fallen and sinful and cannot save ourselves, that we cannot do enough good works. We can't you know, give enough money to the United Way or walk enough Girl Scouts across the street or uh, bring enough meals on wheels or whatever you think is a great thing or run for St. Jude far enough or whatever it is. We can't do enough of that to ever earn our salvation. Thus, Paul says, verse 9, we are not saved because of our works. And Paul highlights the penalty of sin, verse 10, when he says that Jesus abolished death. Because sin is a capital crime against God, and it always carries the death penalty, either for Jesus or for you. And you get to choose which one it will be. You also need to hold to the person and work of Christ. Uh, We believe... That the eternal Son became incarnate in Jesus Christ, who died as our substitute, rose victorious over the grave, ascended into heaven, and will come again as judge. That's a whole lot of verse 10. Um, We believe in salvation by grace through faith. Again, look at verse 9. Not by works, but according to God's purpose and grace. No one is ever saved uh, because of the good things that they did. They're saved on the basis of the one good thing that Jesus did, which was to die as their substitute. Amen? Uh, We believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Scripture. If you look at verse 13 paul says hold on to the pattern of the sound words in verse 14 the good deposit entrusted to you i think that's a reference in verse 13 to the apostolic teaching which became the new testament and to the old testament scriptures which were accepted as god's infallible word by jesus and every one of his earliest followers We believe in redeemed humanity incorporated into christ through the church and that one is more assumed than stated but paul's self-description of himself as preacher and apostle and teacher assumes people that he serves in that capacity amen and he is writing a letter to a guy who is a christian pastor and you don't do that unless you believe that there is a value in the organization that those guys are serving. Amen? And so you hold to the idea that the church is important and that every person who is a member of it ought to show up somewhere in it. Amen? And we also hold to the restoration of humanity and creation. This is the idea that our redemption is not merely for this life, but there is a day coming when all things will be made new and redemption will be complete. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, verse 12, when he talks about the day, the day, and my Bible capitalizes it, It deserves to be capitalized, because there is a day coming when the Trumpet call of God will blow and the archangel will shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the air and the restoration of the world will begin and the kingdom will be established and God will wipe every tear from every eye and there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain anymore for the old order of things is passed away And all these things will come to pass on the day of the Lord. And we hold to that. And Paul held to that. And he tells Timothy, you hold on to that too. That's our hope. That this life is not ended by the grave. That when I die, that is not the end That when I die, in fact, I will be more alive than I have ever been in my life. That I will shut my eyes for the last time. My heart will beat for the last beat. I'll have the last firing of the last brainwave. And then I will open my eyes in glory. And I will say, and no one will be more surprised than me to be there. (laughs) Okay. But I will say... Praise Jesus, I made it. <laughs> okay. And I'm hoping to hear my Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come enjoy your master's happiness. That day is coming. So what can anyone do to me? Nothing. I can be Daniel and when the king makes his edict, I can go home to my house, fling open the windows, and pray three times a day, just like I had always done. Amen? Nobody can stand in my way because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to hold on to me until the day. Amen? He can. All right. Uh, and I want you to look at the text with me again, verse 13 and 14. There, these things, uh, these seven truths are the foundation stone of real biblical orthodoxy. You take any one of them out, and the house starts to be a little, a little shaky. Take all of them out, and it falls down completely. You have to hold these seven truths. They're important. They're foundational. They're absolutely essential. And Paul says to Timothy, you hold to these. On top of that, verse 13 and 14, he says, you hold on to them and you pass them on. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You know what part of the pattern of sound words is? Let me give it to you. You may have heard this verse before. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Remember? It says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? What? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Paul's version of that is Second uh, Timothy chapter two verse two. Skip down there, okay. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to t- teach others also. How do you guard the treasure of the orthodox faith? You make it as widely dispersed as possible. You spread it out. You work on the theory that they can't get us all. (laughs) Okay, and that's what the earliest followers of Jesus did. There's no way they can round up every one of us. Paul might go to prison, but I'm still preaching. And do you know what happened? You went from 12 guys to 120 guys to 3,000 guys to 10,000 guys within 50 years. And you know what happened after that? Given 300 years, it took over the empire. Took over the empire. And even the emperor became a Christian. How did that happen? People faithfully passed on the truth that they knew that they had received as a trust this is not something that's like a like an inheritance you know that maybe you might get from your grandmother or whoever somebody passes away and you you know you get some money and so you're like ha huh, i got some money i'm going to buy a new car okay that's not how it is it's more like a family heirloom that you receive That you enjoy while you're alive and you pass on to the next generation. Faithfully, protecting it and preserving it just as it was received in your hands. Amen? And with the gospel message, you spread it out to as many people as you can get hold of. And you say, in this is life. And every other road leads to death. And this is what changed me. And this is what brought me into relationship with God. And you need this just like I need it. You got people right here in this front row who are going off to do that. I'm so excited about that. By the way, praise God for you both. That you are going to dedicate your lives to sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. Three questions here at the end. Number one, and they're written in your outline there, do you possess shameless faith? We've got some students that are here this morning. I'm glad you're here. Right now, you are in a period of your life where the temptation is going to be to go quiet and to cloak everything you've been taught and believe. So that you can fit in with your friends. By the way, adults, does that temptation stop when you get to be an adult? No. It hadn't yet, right? We live in a world that is becoming increasingly aggressively secular. And wants nothing to do with God but they need the gospel more than ever. Do you possess shameless faith? Are you willing to go on record and say, I stand with Jesus of Nazareth and with the gospel because without it we are all dead and dying and condemned? Do you possess shameless faith? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. By God's power, not because of many energy or holiness within me, but by God's power, as the Scripture says, I will not be ashamed of what I have been entrusted with. Amen? And it's a whole lot easier to do that if we all stand together. Amen? That's part of the reason we have the church. So we have some people we can gather with on a regular basis and say, "Tough out there. You know, let's bandage let's bandage up and go back in." Here we go. Okay. It's part of why we're here. Second question, do you know and understand the central truths of the gospel? Every single member of this church should know and understand the central truths of the gospel. As I was going down through that list of those seven things, you ought to be going, "Uh uh-huh, 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 yep, I know what that means, I know what that is. And if you don't, if you don't, here is your open invitation. If this is all like, man, I don't know what he's talking about, okay? This is your open invitation to get into a group where you can learn those things. I will start for you a small group discipleship group and teach them to you. Explain them to you in detail. Uh, You can join a small group. They're going to be starting up in a few weeks. And I'll assure you that we'll emphasize them there. Uh, you can join a Sunday school class. In fact, there are several good ones going on right now that you could jump into and learn some of these things. Uh, you could also, on your own, do some reading that would really help you. You know, if you want a good a good introductory book on these things, uh, look up Wayne Grudem's *Christian Beliefs: Twenty Basics Every Christian Should Know*. And he packs an enormous amount of good theology in 144 pages. Okay? It will not take you two months to read. You can do a little at a time. Chapters are three to five pages each. Okay? It's not ponderous, and it will give you a lot of great information. Uh, Last thing. Are you able to faithfully pass these truths on to the next generation? Christianity is always one generation from dying out. Always. And the only way it succeeds and the only way it moves forward is if we who have received the gospel and who have believed in Christ are passing it on to those that we know. And if you don't know these things yourself, you're unlikely to ever pass them on, but pass them on we must. Uh, The gospel is needed now more than ever. Did you know this? That half of the people who have ever lived on this planet are alive right now. Half of the people who have ever lived are alive today. And that represents the most massive opportunity for the gospel that there has ever been in the history of the world. And God has invited you and I to participate with him in passing it out. And so you need to guard the treasure you have received by giving it away and watching it grow and bear fruit in other people's lives. You can do that with Mark and with me and others in Evangelism Explosion. You can go on a mission trip with Rick Rosetto. In fact, if you've not ever been on a mission trip and you want to go on one, see Rick and Cindy. They will sign you up and send you somewhere. Okay. And you'll have opportunity to share the gospel with people who might otherwise never hear it. Or you can just walk across the street to your neighbor. Or go to the family gathering at Thanksgiving. Or show up at your workplace. Because I'll assure you in every one of those settings, there are unsaved people who apart from faith in Christ are going to die and go to hell. And they need to hear the gospel from your lips and from mine. Amen? And if we are orthodox people, we are all about doing what Jesus told us to do, which is to proclaim boldly the good news about Him to all nations, all people. Every tongue and tribe and language and ethnic group across the entire globe. Amen? Well, uh, we're going to take just a minute here and hear the testimonies of those that we're baptizing today whose lives have been changed by the gospel.